today on Ag News Daily. Our forest resources are not being harvested to the degree they can across the country because there's been a gap that's formed between the forests and the logistics systems and the forest material processing industry, the lumber mills and such. Good morning, listeners, live from the uh, Farmer to Farmer. I wanted to call it the FBN Conference, Delaney. It is the FBN Conference. Farmer to Farmer, December 7th, Wednesday, 2022. Our episode today is brought to you by Mystic Lubricants. For a full look at their line of products, visit mysticlubes.com. That is M-Y-S-T-I-K lubes.com. Delaney, we are sitting backstage at Farmer to Farmer. Wouldn't you call it backstage? Yeah, I would call it backstage. Behind the guts of the trade show. We are deep in the bowels of the trade show. It's been a good one to start off with. Had a, a keynote speaker last night, Alex Honnold, the climber, climbing up sheer cliffs, like literally mm, sheer. I don't know exactly what that is. Oh, so he's smooth rock faces to yep. where there's special shoes that allow you to oh. not lose your foothold. Otherwise, he said it's just friction. Ooh, that's that, the only thing to hold you is friction. I don't think I could do that. No. that uh, A lot of people were riveted uh, or part of, very, very into his riveting story. So that was good last night. Did you have a good evening, Delaney? I did. I had a nice, big, juicy steak, and then I went to bed. <laughs> so, yes, that's, uh, I might have stayed out a little bit later. Half the fun of being at these events is the networking, spending the time with people that you've either met online or haven't ever met before. But let's get into the news. They're not too concerned about what we're doing out here. We talked a little bit yesterday about the uh, storm uh, forming out into the Atlantic Ocean. Now the National Hurricane Center is issuing a special tropical weather outlook as that low-pressure system is now producing disorganized showers and thunderstorms. It is now about 8 800 miles northeast of the Leeward Islands in the Caribbean. This is possibly going to organize into an actual tropical depression, Delaney. The tropical storm then could produce cloud-free centers of circulation that would be a band of nearly 100 miles wide out from the center. So if it does continue to develop, Delaney, it could become a really severe tropical system and hopefully does not get into hurricane status. Well, it's certainly cooling down here in the Midwest, Tanner, as temperatures are starting to drop and will be for the next couple of days. I think you mentioned yesterday on the podcast or earlier this week that the polar vortex is starting to sweep through the Midwest, and we can certainly feel that this morning as mm-hmm. the air is very brisk. It wakes you right up. Yes, it is very chilly here in Omaha. But Tanner, I also wanted to report on, you know, yesterday the buzz around commodity markets was what was going on with the Chinese markets because we saw soybeans push to some fresh highs yesterday. And uh, I think at one point, I don't think they were limit up, but I think they were near the limit uh, just on fresh buying of Chinese soybean purchases. We also saw Argentina's peso for soybeans program also spurred the sale of about 2 million metric tons mm-hmm. of soybeans so far. Uh, Chinese buyers have been coming to the table both in the U.S. and Argentina, and soon they will go to Brazil as we see that 
crop come on the pipeline, but U.S. soybean export shipments for this marketing year to date currently fall short of the seasonal pace needed to hit USDA's target of by about 34 million bushels or 1 million metric tons. So yesterday's soybean markets were, of course, partially supported by the overnight sale of just over 18 million bushels of soybeans headed to unknown destinations and China. And uh, so we are still below pace, but we are seeing China come to the buying table right now. That is good to see them continuing to show up. I know there's a lot of economic concerns about whether or not they will fulfill the predicted orders as far as that goes. Delaney, you and I talked here before getting on the mics about the Georgia Senate election that went to a runoff after November. I didn't realize that Senator Raphael Warnock had to do the same thing in 2020 during the special Mm. elections. So he's now undefeated four times. But because of the majority vote win for this general election in 2020, he also had to do a runoff during that special election, but now just re-won his bid for a full six-year term in the Senate. This does give the Democrats power. They have their 51st seat. And that gives them the true majority coming out of Georgia. If it was going to be tied 50-50, that would require a cast of cast vote from Vice President Kamala Harris to break the tie if there ever was one. But now winning the 51st seat, thanks to Warnock's victory on Tuesday, it is an important benefit for the Democrats in the Senate. It'll be interesting to see. What comes about in the future because Georgia is continuing to be labeled as a swing state Mm -hmm. for all future elections. Well, and this election, as we've mentioned before, really has an impact on how the next farm bill is developed. And U.S. senators already have raised concerns on Tuesday that the U.S. Farm Bill needs to do more in 2023 to ensure that agricultural research is a top priority for the U.S. They said countries such as China and Brazil have been investing more heavily in agricultural research than the United States and could outpace the U.S. soon when it comes to agricultural research and advancements in agriculture. So they stressed that that was going to be a really key segment here for the next Farm Bill. And they said demand for these Farm Bill programs continues to outpace the available Available resources. Yet in recent years, funding for public agriculture research here in the U.S. has declined, which is very concerning. They said, meanwhile, China has quintupled its investment in public research since 2000 and now invests twice as much as the research does research in the U.S. does. And so it's going to be pertinent here to include that in the next farm bill. Yeah, that it will be interesting. I had seen that headline. I had a couple of discussions with some farmers this morning stating that there may be concerns about the lack of inventory revolving because of the lack of supplies to produce it, which isn't generating enough of a budget mm-hmm. for R&D. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see where the funds for the research come to catch us back up. But let's take here a break for a message from our sponsor today. Since 1922, Mystic Lubricants has been providing superior performance and protection for farmers who demand the most out of their equipment. Today, Mystic continues to develop products in real-world conditions that are specially formulated to meet the unique demands of your specialized machines. They provide advanced protection for engine longevity and are the choice of people who make a living working the land. Learn more about Mystic products at mysticlubes.com. That's M-Y-S-T-I-K lubes.com. Coming back out of that, family farms, small and large, Delaney, still compose about 98% of the farms 
in the United States. So the family farms are accounting for 83% of the production, according to the USDA's report. Small farms made up 89% of the total number of farms in the United States. But get this, Delaney, they farmed only 45% of the land. So 89% of farms are classified as small, but they only farm 45% of the acres in the United States. Large family farms, meanwhile, accounted for 46% of the value of production in the U.S. and 27% of the ag land. So you look at this, mid-sized farmers fall right in between, about 18 and 18, and non-family farms are only 2%. So 98 is quite a high number there as defined by family. So although the percentage of non-family farms has remained the same since 2020, the USDA said, the farm's value of production has increased from 13% in 2020 to 17% in 2021. So the number hasn't grown, but their size has, Delaney. So when you take a look at that, small family farms are considered those that have gross income of less than $350,000 a year. Mid-size is up to a million, and large scale is of that over a million dollars. That's a lot. That's a big percentage of farms that... Well, you know, we just reported earlier this week, too, on foreign farmland investors. So right. I'm sure that they could be part of that. Yep. That would probably fall into that Other 2%. percentage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Tanner, I know that Peter Zion is speaking later today at the Farmer to Farmer conference. So hopefully you'll get to go to that. One of us will get to go to that and bring some updates on that tomorrow. But Peter spends a lot of time focusing on geopolitical issues. And I'm going to guess he's going to talk about Russia and all the headlines going on there. But I found this interesting story this morning about the EU has officially banned Russian crude oil imports as of December 5th, and they will start to ban Russian oil products on February 5th in an attempt to freeze Russia out. But here's a caveat that I don't think a lot of people intended. They said that regulators do not have the tools to trace the origin of where the fuel comes from as it passes through to other countries. So mm. they're suggesting that perhaps Russia is going to find partners that it can blend its diesel fuel with and still get exported to other countries because there is no way to tell once it's blended where that fuel has come from. Europe's currently struggling to replace the 600,000 barrels per day of their Russian supply. And as we head into the winter months here, the energy crisis really is going mm-hmm. to be front and center for a lot of folks. But I, that was just an interesting piece of news that I guess I don't know how you would track it. Right. That would be quite difficult because, you you know, without dyes or tracers, it would be something hard to do. The last piece, short headline that I have for today also is related to diesel. Indonesia is making their plans to bring B35, so 35% mix of palm oil-based fuel with their diesel fuel, to the market in 2023. Their chief economics minister, minister said that uh, we don't have a lot of details at this time. The government has been directed to make sure this action has taken place. They plan to implement B35 to reduce their dependency on oil imports. He said without offering a timeline for the move, the country is also currently working on wrapping up trials for a B40 blend. There is no timeline for that. And I didn't realize it, but Indonesia already mandates a B30 fuel usage Mm. within their country. So that's the last piece of news I have today. How about we take one more break for a message from our sponsor. Since 1922, Mystic Lubricants has been providing superior performance and protection for farmers who demand the most out of their equipment. 
Today, Mystic continues to develop products in real-world conditions that are specially formulated to meet the unique demands of your specialized machines. They provide advanced protection for engine longevity and are the choice of people who make a living working the land. Learn more about Mystic products at mysticlubes.com. That's M-Y-S-T-I-K lubes.com. Tanner, I have just one final piece of news here as well before we happen to check out where markets open this morning. And that is right along here with the soy storyline. Maybe this new soy facility will eventually send some of those biodiesel exports to Indonesia that you just reported on there. But Minnesota-based Epitome Energy announced plans to build a $400 million soy crushing facility just north of Grand Forks, North Dakota, with plans to start production in the fall of 2025. So this, of course, will be helpful for that local community, the tax base and elsewhere. But construction on the new plant will be about 55 acres across the Grand Forks site and is expected to break ground officially in 2023 and be able to process quite a few soybeans in the area. They said they are expecting to process about 42 million bushels annually, Tanner. So good piece of news there for folks up in North Dakota. I bet that that will help with the basis in that area. Yeah, I think it will. Just anytime you can add add competition to the market, it probably is beneficial to our listeners, the growers. How are markets looking today? Well, Tanner, taking a look at the opening markets here, things are opening up fairly slowly on the corn front. March corn is up just right at a penny here at the open at 6.38.5. January soybeans up big moves again today. 12.5 cents here at the open, trading right around that 14.67 mark. And hard red winter wheat is also up this morning, up about six pennies on the morning to open at 8.36 and three quarters. Livestock, on the other hand, are opening in the red as February live cattle down about 25 cents on the morning at a buck 53.37. January feeders are down about 57 and a half cents here at the open at 181.22. And February lean hogs are up 15 pennies on the day at 87.10. Tanner, without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation with On Track North America. Hey, listeners, we're excited to have this conversation today with Michael Sussman. He is chairman and CEO of On Track North America, 501c3, as well as part of the Strategic Rail Finance. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Hey, thanks, Tanner. Appreciate being why here. Yes. Why don't you jump right into who Michael is and what your roles are with both of those organizations? Sure. After a, a career as a founder and a president of a national commercial refrigeration company, I started thinking about uh, what exactly does the country need that I can uh, most contribute to. And I was introduced to a small short line railroad and solved its funding challenge and started wondering, why are we using railroads more uh, more in the United States, given the energy efficiency, cost efficiency, space efficiency of railroads, why have we oriented our system so much around highways and trucks? And I thought that was a very interesting dynamic and would provide a window into thinking about and improving how we think about industrial systems and whole supply chains and commerce. And uh, so that got me uh, started advising states, federal government and railroads on transportation finance and uh, industrial systems design. 
So that's led uh, all the way to uh, recently authoring the 2021 Nevada State Rail Plan, which is really a breakthrough in public sector transportation planning, where by engaging with 550 stakeholders in the state, we designed a, a whole supply chain, whole state uh, approach to improving transportation efficiency, particularly by using rail. Uh, and in Nevada, of course, you have the, the mining industry, which is still very robust there, yet is hardly using rail. And of course, that applies to, you know, what I'm saying applies to the entire agriculture industry. Uh, and now we're um, co-leading the Sangre de Cristo Mountain Initiative in New Mexico, where we are convening and coordinating across agencies, public and private sector, and all businesses in the forestry industry in that region to forward the kind, the level of collaboration and coordination that we now need to, to make improvements in whole industries and supply chains. Wow. On our show a lot lately, Michael, the rail industry has been a huge topic for us. And I think we all know why the rail industry is so important. But my question is, what can the rail industry improving its efficiencies and improving upon other things do for the ag industry? Sure. You know, whenever we talk about this subject, uh, the the conversation invariably and appropriately gets to you know, how do we have the rail industry be more responsive and shift into a growth mode? Because it really hasn't been in a growth mode for the last 110 years. And uh, what we say is that that's not uh, just a a matter of the the big railroads being uh, recalcitrant or having the, you know, an inappropriate business model. It's really a societal issue in that Rail development and rail transportation requires participation of more stakeholders acting together than just what the railroads can do on their own. So it's not a railroad problem. It's not a labor problem. It's not um, a fossil fuel problem. It's a problem that we're all dealing with in making the shift finally as a society and really as a civilization from competition for individual narrow gain to collaboration and coordination across all sectors and businesses and communities, states, counties, the railroads themselves can't bring that forward. They really need a new initiative entity that we have to start bringing forward as a society uh, to facilitate this level of collaboration. Railroad transportation, you know, moving heavy weight over land on steel wheels, on steel rails, is so fundamentally grounded in physics, energy, friction, that that is the, the much more efficient means to orient our transportation around but in a world of competition and narrow thinking, you know, the capital has flowed toward highways, trucks as the primary way that we move goods. So making that so, shift to rail transportation just has, you know, lots of benefits to the shippers and the communities and the environment. So you had mentioned during your introduction that you had worked on a project, I believe, in, in Nevada that was comprehensive or, or globally integrated 
I believe is what you'd mentioned. Do you see a project like that being an example for how plans throughout the rest of the U.S. could come into play? Sure. Every state is required by the federal government to create a freight plan and a rail plan and submit it to the U.S. government every four years now. And uh, rather than those plans being simply reports and projections based on past trends, they could utilize the model that we laid down in Nevada of it actually being a commercially relevant stakeholder informed action plan that addresses the freight needs and opportunities of all the businesses and communities in a state. So it absolutely can and should be scaled up to become the new model for how we do these public sector transportation plans, which are called plans, but in reality, they're simply reports and narratives that no one can act on. And, and frankly, they're, they're not acted on currently. When it comes to these plans and changes that need to be made, who are the policymakers and the groups that are able to make those changes? When you think about transportation, supply chains, and logistics, the folks that are now left out of that dynamic, that planning and implementation dynamic, it's the transportation providers, the businesses, the local economic development folks, and most, perhaps most importantly, the land developers and builders who right now are building a surge of manufacturing and warehouse facilities that are truck served only. And they need to be brought into this action planning process in a meaningful way so that we can, you know, turn around the supply chain systems and orient them more toward using rail as much as possible. Of course, it's never at the expense of trucks. There's plenty of freight for everybody and each mode to be moving. We just need to make the greatest use of rail as possible. And that's naturally going to be beneficial to the trucking industry as well, who, as we know, is the largest customer of the railroad industry. So it's those stakeholders that I just mentioned that need to be brought into this action planning process. And that's a large group of people to put together, but I assume the 5013C designation that your organization has puts you in a good position to provide advice in those instances with a lot of the articles we've been reporting on about the looming potential rail strike and the negotiations amongst the rail unions. How do you see that affecting the advice your organization gives in the future? Sure. Uh, we created the North American Freight Forum at freightforum.org. Uh, my co-leaders in that project are Dan Elliott, the former chair of the Surface Transportation Board, and Jim Hecker, the former chair of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And you'll see that as a new kind of platform for large-scale multi-stakeholder dialogue that really addresses the issue that uh, we need to we need to create the solution for all those major issues that end up with someone saying we need a national dialogue about, you know, typically it's talked about in terms of gun control or, or race relations. And uh, 
when you look realistically at where would we actually have a national dialogue, we see that there isn't a place. So this answers that compelling need to have facilitated, organized, uh, logical dialogue where no one gets to own the, the, the forum or the dialogue agenda. It's created and inputted into, um, without vested interests. And, uh, we'll, we're, you'll see that that freight forum already catalogs the dialogues around the most important questions and issues that need to be answered in North American supply chain planning today. Yeah. And you have mentioned that, you know, during your introduction, that planning is a big part of what you do. And you also slipped in there and I don't want us to forget about a fort reforestation. If I said that correctly, project that you've been working on in New Mexico. Is that correct? Could you elaborate yeah. on that a little bit? more? Yes. Well, we're all pretty much aware of, the extent to which our forests are catching fire and burning up. And um, since I've been learning so much about forest and forest management uh, over the past two years, um, we've seen that we're not so well equipped to address large scale ecological issues like this. The level of collaboration and coordination that typically is brought to issues is not sufficient to deal with 500,000 acre, for instance, forest fires, where you need a multi-dimensional approach to dealing with the burnt timber, dealing with the still green stands that need to be thinned to prevent future forest fires and improve the overall health of the forest. I've been learning how much communities around forests and down slope and down valley from from forests are connected to and impacted by forest health, including the whole watershed area. So we've been applying in New Mexico the lessons that we've explored and learned by convening communities around rail-served economic development. We've been applying it now to large to surge, creating a surge of a community's ability to go into the forest and do the level of forest treatment that's needed. Uh, that's the Sangre de Cristo Mountain Initiative. It can be read about at sdcmi.org. It's a very exciting project because it, it really gives us the chance to model in a very pragmatic way this level of multidimensional thinking and investing in dealing with these major community and regional and national issues that we have. And certainly forest fires that are occurring around the country are, are uh, bringing this more to the fore. And, you know, the other thing we find out is that our forest resources are not being harvested to the degree they can across the country because there's been a, a, a gap that's formed between the forests and the logistic systems and the forest material processing industry, the lumber mills and such. There's there's gaps everywhere you look throughout the system. And if we address those gaps, there's just a huge benefit to the ag and forestry industry and the country as a whole for all of these commercial reasons, as well as environmental and community vitality reasons. So we're pretty excited about the Sangre de Cristo Mountain Initiative. 
And Michael, it seems like there's so many different initiatives and things going on within OnTrack North America that can really help our listeners and the ag industry as a whole. So if they want to get involved and learn more about these initiatives and the plans y'all have moving forward, how can they do so? Sure. Um, best way is to go to ontracknorthamerica.org. And that's just, you know, the four words together. Uh, and all of our contact information is there. I, I think that's uh, the easiest way to direct your listeners. Awesome. Well, this has been a pleasure. I know we didn't nearly get covered what we wanted to, and, and I know there'll be more for people to take out or to check out. But yes, thank you again for joining us today. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Tanner. Thank you, Cassidy. Yeah, Delaney, that was a conversation that I anticipated talking about the rail strike in, which we did a little, but mainly nice to see there that this nonprofit can work to put logistics plans together for our nation, and maybe we can get a large adoption going forward. So it'll be fun to see what other content we get here out of Farmer to Farmer today, but uh, listeners, we're having a lot of fun. If you are out here, come find us. Delaney is hanging out at the gfy.ag booth, and uh, grab yourself a bucket Come say hi. We got lots of buckets. Please come take a bucket. I do not want them to go home with us. There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> well, listeners, for today, we appreciate you listening. And Delaney, what do you say? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go.